One Week Season. WS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. We are back for, oh my gosh, I think it's the seventh installment now of this Best Ball Theory podcast. We are going to talk about some end game theory today with my man, my main dude. You know him, Mr. Zandemir. We're going to bring him in here shortly. I'm going to go over what we're going to talk about and we are going to hit the ground running. End game theory. What are we talking about? That basically is the importance of week 17 and some field tendencies and how we are going to be looking to leverage those dynamics. We're also going to talk about some risk profiles. And that is in particular, uh, I guess, for, with respect to particular player archetypes and the variance and risk associated with those players. Uh, and we're going to bring in Zandemir for his expertise, which is that showdown mindset and methodologies. And he's going to give us how he is approaching best ball with some of those methodologies and um, looking at really at the end game of best ball tournaments as an isolated slate. So without further ado, we'll bring him in. You know him, the man, the myth, the showdown legend, Mr. Zandemir. How are we doing today, man? (laughs) (laughs) That's quite the intro. Oh, man. Oh, dude, I got to go all out, dude. I'm doing good. I'm coming off of my like my DFS break. I stopped playing MLB DFS a couple of years ago because just the year-round cycle of it was like just too much time. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming off of NBA, I pause, and uh, now I'm like ready to go. I'm excited. I'm starting to look at like season-long prop bets to place uh, as part of our prop bet package that we have on OWS this year, which is super exciting. Um, I'm ready. Yeah, let's. Do it. I'm gonna cut into there right real quick. Give us a little taste of what we can expect with that prop betting package this year. Oh man. Okay. So this is pretty exciting. One of the cool things about props to me is it's a predictable field where I think everyone can win. Like my expectation is that every single one of our subscribers will turn a profit in props. And you know, it's different than DFS where you can play well and you can play DFS smartly and well and build good rosters and, and make good contest selection. And you can have a losing season, right? Mm-hmm. I bet. Um, and it's frustrating to feel like I played well. I, I joined this community. I spent money on this content. I put a lot of time into it and it, it didn't go my way. And I lost money this season. And, and that's the nature of the game, right? Like that's the nature of, of, of top heavy tournament play. Um, but the exciting thing about props is I am, I am a hundred percent confident at the end of the year, every single person uh, who follows us and, and, and participates and is able to get, you know, a good chunk of the bets we'll have a profitable season and that's cool because it's fun to cheer like for the community as a group, right? Not just like the one guy who won that week. It's really fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's cool. It is fun. We, you know, in OWS, we cheer for each other when someone wins. Right. Um, and it's, it, that's fun in ter- to cheer for someone to take down a big tournament, but it's also cool to be like, we all won today and that's awesome. And so I'm excited about that. You know, we're going to deliver, it's hard to, I, I would guess between 10 and 20 NFL bets per week uh, is my my expectation of what we'll deliver based on what I did last year. Um, the market is super soft and beatable. And um, you know, I, I expect that we're, expect we're going to make a lot of money. You know, I think I, I did NBL and NBL, NFL and NBL um, <laughs> yeah. last year for props. And I came out, you know, over like 40 grand ahead, like real money. Um, and 
that was, you know, with mostly a fairly small prop bankroll, especially when I got started at it, as I was sort of learning um, a process and learning, you know, how to apply my normal like analytics process to the world of props. And I, you know, I don't know if I'll do that well this year, but it's exciting. I'm excited, man. And I'm excited to bring other people along for the ride and then help our, help our subs have a, you know, a happy, a happy, uh, happy and profitable season. Yeah, man, that's incredible. And are we live with that now? It is live. Um, you can get it on OWS right now. Uh, we're just starting to set up like the discord structure for it. Um, so we're going to announce it in discord, which is actually really cool because you can like set discord notifications on your phone or on like an Apple watch or something like that. You can set a notification specifically for the channel that we're going to post props in. So like if you're not sitting at your computer um, or looking at discord, like, and we post, like what we'll do is we'll post a prop alert that says, you know, prop bet coming in five minutes. Uh, And that way you you'll get the alert and you'll be able to like, you know, log into the site you're betting on and sort of get ready. And so that when the bet comes, you can place the bet quickly before, um, you know, hopefully before the line moves because, you know, prop lines move when a bunch of people start betting them. Um, And so like, that's the way, I think we can do it so that uh, you know, the most people possible have an opportunity to grab those bets before the lines shift. And line shifting is just a part of the you know the betting world, right? We can't we can't stop that, but we can try to equip our subscribers to you know to get to get the most out of it possible. And we think that's a good structure, and that's what we encourage people to do: is set up you know set up those alerts so you see the bets when they come in and can jump on them. And but yeah, it's uh, we're going to start posting um, we're going to start posting some season long prop bets. Uh, it looks like next week. I thought it was going to be this week. I was rushing it a little bit. So it looks like next week. And then we'll roll through season-long props all the way into the season. Um, and then and weekly props from the season on. Yeah, man. That is outstanding. Definitely looking forward to tagging along uh, with your journey there. And I'm definitely going to throw some action. Let's go, dude. No pressure. You <laughs> I got hope this. to make you some money, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. No pressure, man. Let's go. Uh, that's awesome, dude. Thanks for uh, filling us in uh, with what to expect with that product. Um, obviously OWS, we are kind of pushing, um, what we are bringing to the table this year. There are many announcements yet to come, so stay tuned for those. And we are just, uh, we're just teasing baby. That's what we do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, let's get into it, man. I want, I really wanted to have you on specifically and, and I've had you in mind for a while to, to bring on this podcast, you know, this heavy theoretical based best ball podcast. Um, the reason for that is because of the importance of week 17. And, you know, we've covered that on this podcast ad nauseum. That's where all the money is made. That's we need to be placing emphasis. There is leverage to be gained. But if we're thinking about an isolated slate that is, you know, from this point today, five months down the road, six months down the road uh, from, you know, when these drafts started, what kind of, I guess, what kind of like showdown mentality and and methodologies are you bringing to the table uh, with that in mind for this end game best ball theory? I would think about it from the perspective of you need to embrace variance to equip yourself with the best chance to take down first place, right? And the way I see it, and you know, from looking at best ball content around the industry, and and also just watching people like chat about best ball. Um, I love watching people try to troll you on Twitter and you put <laughs> builds. It's hilarious to me. Um, but yeah, you know, people, <laughs> I guess I'll make like what I think is sort of my main point very early, which might be, you know, shooting my load too soon, but, um, I think <laughs> that, uh, sorry, should I not make jokes like that? No, 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 um, please feel free. Uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> 
I think that best ball, I draw, I, I'm a DFS guy. And so I'm drawing analogies in my mind to thinking about best ball to how, we, how I've thought about DFS. And best ball right now is like DFS back in, you know, 2013, 2014. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is DFS back then, people were, you know, people were thinking about figuring out the good plays, like the players who were likely to put up good scores that week. They weren't thinking about correlation. They weren't thinking about leverage. They were maybe a tiny bit thinking about ownership, but not much. You know, at most, maybe someone would like stack a wide receiver with their quarterback. And that was where DFS theory was at at the point, right? At that point, right? We hadn't had years and years of data to dig into. The sophistication of the field was still, it was still very, very new. Um, and so everyone kind of followed along with like the one strategy that most recently worked. That was, it was recency bias and full action, right? Like a player would have a big game and then next week his ownership would be twice what it was the previous week. Um, mm-hmm. or would have a bad game and his ownership would be minuscule the next week, right? It was like people were just following this herd. And I see that in best ball, right? Like if you look at the, if you look at like what won last year, everyone is embracing that same strategy. And last yeah. year, same, right? Like I remember arguing with people last year about the like hyper fragile or zero RB builds um, and how that wasn't like a cheat code to best ball. That was a, a viable strategy, but like people were acting like that was the way to build. And I was arguing with them saying, no, it's, it's one way and it worked once, but we have a sample size of one. Like this is not, you know, we do not have a lot of data around this. And this is going to be the really interesting thing for best ball for years to come is that because there's only one season a year, we don't get a whole bunch of slates of best ball, right? We get yeah. best ball season. And so that's the feedback loop years to develop a robust data set. And so we can utilize this for years to come as the field very, you know, it'll get sharper over time, but it's going to take a while. And so the field's going to continue doing what it's doing today, which is hurting after, you know, what won last year and getting very focused on this one strategy. And it's not that it's a bad strategy, but in any kind of like any kind of high variance activity, when you have a whole bunch of people doing one thing, it makes sense to do the other. Like if I have a magic coin that flips heads seventy five percent of the time, and, and you know you and I know that, and so you'd think you should bet heads; it's the best play. But what if I'm bet? What if I'm playing against ten other people and all of them bet heads? Mm-hmm. I should not bet tails, right? Like if I'm betting in a pool, because right? even though tails is less likely to come up, I'm going to win more money when it does. And that's you know that's that's like <laughs> that's my description of. Uh, DFS ownership theory in, you know, a super simplistic example, but I think it's really applicable to best ball where you see people really flocking to like, you must build like two, five, eight, two or whatever it is. And, you know, you must here are the three games in week 17 that you absolutely must target and you must build game stacks around them. And, you know, you pulled some interesting data on the Millie maker, right? Around onslaughts and how often bringbacks were mm-hmm. in Millie maker lineups. And that's really applicable to DFS, of course, but it's also applicable to best ball. You know, if everyone's like building around the, I must stack game, I must stack week 17, I must pick one game and I must build, you know, game stacks with both teams. Like, cool. That tells me exactly what not to do if I leverage on the field. And the the problem with it is, the problem with that strategy is it's one of those ones that's kind of like DFS, where even if you're right, let you pick a week 17 game is your core stack. And you get a team through that's built around that stack and that game goes off. And you're like, yes, I built my team around that stack. Awesome. But the problem is, so did 25% of the field. Yeah. 
and people so, don't realize that your margin of error actually goes down when you're fighting that percentage of the field because if you talk about like the variance associated with the NFL game, like it's it's a higher percentage chance that a different game goes off than you to pick the right onesie twosies outside of that game stack to lap the field that you're fighting against. So yeah, that's interesting dynamic and point to bring up. Absolutely. And I'd, I would rather, if I'm going for first, I would rather place bets on, you know, another game going off or it going off in an uncorrelated way or a correlated way that's very different than the field expects. Like I saw a roster you posted that was like Kyler Murray and Daryl Williams and no Arizona wide receiver, which I thought was super mm-hmm. interesting, right? Like you're, you're making bets that the game is going to go off in a way the field's not expecting or, you know, the game, or the, the core game that people are betting on isn't going to go off or, you know, whatever, something different. And even though that might not be the most likely outcome, it's also the, it's also the outcome that if it hits, you're not competing against 25% of the field. No one else is going to have that. Yeah. And when you're, when you start talking about ownership, now we have to start talking about like combinatorial ownership as well. When it, when you're in a snake draft with a, although fluid and dynamic ADP, but there is a set ADP that drives a lot of, I'm going to click this button at this time in this round. Right. So like, if you think about like primary correlations, particularly in the first five rounds, there's a lot of teams that are built very similarly. The example I, the example I like to use is like Cooper cup, uh, and then like either Mike Williams or Keenan Allen, their ADPs have lined up very naturally. Then you talk about like, well, I must game stack. Well, then it's super easy um, to add Herbert in the fourth round after you take mm-hmm. Mike Williams or Keenan Allen. So like when you start talking about ownership, it's much more than just like what your particular exposure is to a player. You have to start thinking about how your builds look compared to the field and how they are building. And that's like, I think one of the, more glaring examples of something that the field is largely, I won't say missing, but like not, (laughs) I guess, missing, like they're just not paying attention to this idea of like ADP and combinatorial ownership. And yeah, yeah. I was gonna say early is super interesting, right? Because if you think about combinatorial ownership in a snake draft, it's going to be essentially like a branching path where the, where the branches get wider and wider, the deeper the rounds go. So to your point, if someone drafts Cooper Cup at ADP of, you know, I don't know, third, third overall or second overall, right? Um, then their next pick in a 12-player draft or what does underdog do? Is it 10 or 12? I kind of 12. 12. Yeah. I'm sorry. I play like so many different sites and I can't keep track of like who's <laughs> Yeah. Um, so underdog is 12. And so your next picks are like, you know, right at, what is that? You're going to have a pick at, oh God, why is my math not working? Is it 20 or <laughs> And, you know, you, you know where your next picks are going to be and you know the ADPs of the guys right around there. And so, you know, a large percentage of rosters that have Cooper Cup are going to have one of, you know, two or three players whose ADP falls right around where that second pick comes up. And then same with two or three players who fall right around the ADP where the third pick comes up. And then as the draft goes on, the, way, the range of outcomes for each pick becomes wider, right? Um, but for the first few... You know, so you know, like, okay, so I drafted Cooper Cup and I drafted Keenan Allen and I drafted Justin Herbert. Great. Good for you if that game goes off. But there's a lot of rosters built around that exact combination. Mm-hmm. I think it's the point you're trying to make, right? Like, yeah. And yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. Like when you start thinking about like, how do I become different? And the, I guess the counterpoint to this argument is uh, value versus versus stacks is kind of the big one around the industry right now. It's like, well, if I get this player at value, like what does that do 
uh, versus drafting a player before ADP to include in a stack? Well, the answer is we don't know. Like we have no, we don't have the computational power or like this algorithm built to, to give us that answer. But what we do know is ADP is fluid and we can't think about a snapshot in ADP as like, oh, I drafted this guy seven spots past ADP. I win. Like it's not black and white ones and zeros. It's not like ADP is not going to change over a draft window that is three and a half, four months long. Right. So like it's this very interesting dynamic of this and this, uh, we'll call it like a, a tango where every move has a counter move. Right. We don't know what the answer is in the the discussion of ADP versus, or I guess value versus versus correlation and stacking. Like we don't know that, but what we do know is what we can observe, and what we can observe is what the field is doing, and what the field is doing is the standard two five eight three or two six eight two builds that because those have been proven to be the most valuable from an advancement rate perspective, paired with week seventeen primary correlations and stacks. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, like it doesn't take a whole lot for us to to move beyond that from a from an approach mindset and from a like game plan development mindset. So that is particularly true like we talked about earlier with these early round pairings, this combinatorial combinatorial ownership with the early round picks in a snake draft. And what's interesting is we've we've had movers in those first five rounds. We've primarily guys that have jumped in ADP is the biggest movement we've seen is jump in ADP in the first five rounds. Obviously there are players that have to slide to counteract that, but what we're seeing is basically a, a domino effect sliding. There haven't been like major, major fallers in the first five rounds. A lot of the players that are falling are in the, I call it the breakout sweet zone, which is like round seven to round 10. That's where we've had a lot of these fallers. And if you start thinking about like how, what's that? Or Russell Gage. Yeah, 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 exactly. I know, right? Um, But we start like thinking about like how that affects like what the field is doing and how we leverage that information. And again, this is all based off of observations and then um, tailoring that into projections and how we are expecting the field to be behaving. Because we don't, we don't, we're not in every single draft and we can't see every single draft, right? We're in this kind of like bubble of what we see on fantasy Twitter and what we see in our own drafts, but we can start make, to make these assumptions and place those into like how we develop our game plan. And there's very interesting case to be made for kind of shaking up your exposures in those uh, first five rounds. And I say exposures, what I really mean by that is our pairings, you know, our combinatorial ownership in those first five rounds particularly considering we haven't had major fallers in the, in that early stage of the draft. Uh, super interesting. Yeah. Like your ownership of, you know, how much Jonathan Taylor you have versus how much Christian McCaffrey you have over 150 drafts is not likely to determine whether or not you win the tournament, right? You're probably going to have, you know, the, the a rough, like a, within a fairly narrow range, um, unless Christian McCaffrey shot way up. Um, but like you probably, you know, those, the top picks that are generally like fairly stable in ADP, you're likely to have a reasonable percentage of all of them. And you should, right? Like if you're, if you're drafting across a portfolio of 150 lineups, you probably don't want to take super hard stands. Like I will draft zero Derrick Henry or whatever, right? Like that's, that's not how I would view it at least. Um, you probably want to think it's the, the important part is the combinatorial ownership, as you point out. 
but no one measures it and no one talks about it, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you look on best ball Twitter and it's all, I have 16% of this guy and I'm super happy about that. I have, I have 18% Aaron Jones. Like I'm really high on him. And it's like, cool. Who's he with? Yeah. He's not going to win you a tournament by himself. He's hundred percent owned. Every single, every single group has an Aaron Jones roster, right? Like, yeah, it's one of two running backs or one of two wide receivers. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this is DFS where, you know, you get like the guy at 5% ownership, like, you know, the, the top players are all 100% owned. And so mm-hmm. just getting some of him isn't going to make you win. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing I think that comes up from a late season leverage piece is a lot of the variance that happens between now at the start of like preseason camp and week 17, which is five and a half months down the road. Mm-hmm. There's so much that can happen in an NFL season within that time. So if you start thinking about like, how can I attack these either primary correlations or secondary correlations from week 17, because we know it's important, but we don't want to be doing exactly as the field is doing. One of the, there's really two big pieces of leverage that I have uncovered um, through my kind of think tank this off season. One, it has to do with those numbers that I pulled up that you referred to earlier with what worked in the Millimaker last season. And five times out of the 18 full slate weeks that we had last year, a quarterback paired with his running back paired with a pass catcher with no bringback was optimal. That is insane. Like nobody's doing that. So if you think about like the majority of people are worried about pairing a quarterback with a pass catcher or two or three overstack mega stack, whatever you want to call it. Like the field is not doing a very simple technique that has proven to work at a fairly high percentage rate chance. So that is one. And it uncovered again, digging through like just last year's millimaker winners. The other is this <clears throat> dynamic where people, if they are correlating, they're thinking about potential game environments, right? Like that is an assumption that we can make about the field that they are smart in that area. So if a team is, or if I, I, if a roster is being built around a particular week 17 game environment, they are likely doing so with the primary pieces of that game environment. Now stick with me here. This is, I think this is super important. Again, back to the variance piece. There's so much that can happen with it within that time frame. So if you think about like, one potential outcome of a game environment of a high profile game in week 17 would be, we'll say the bills and Cincinnati Monday night football, the last game of week 17, it is like the, the had to have it or had, it didn't even matter game because you know, it's the last game of the week that you win all the money. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about Cincinnati and the Bengals, what are people doing? It's like, okay, Josh Allen and uh, one or two of his pass catchers. And then, either Joe Mixon or some other Cincinnati pass catchers, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you really want to amp up your leverage, why not think about that same potential game environment from a variant mindset? What if Joe Mixon gets hurt between now and week 17? Who is the backup in Cincinnati that we can project to take on that rushing workload. Do we expect oh, yeah, him to say, have... Is this where you talk about Isaiah McKenzie? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have a, I have a grip of Isaiah McKenzie, but that's a, <laughs> that's a victory lap for a different day, bro. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but yeah, like what about like that same game environment? Like I'm going to take uh, like 
Josh Allen and uh, Stefan Diggs and either Crowder and McKenzie, like mm-hmm. a, a, a solid team stack, a quarterback and two of his pass catchers. And then I'm going to bring it back with a backup running back of Cincinnati. Nobody is doing that. Another great example of that is the uh, Chargers and the Rams game. Another week 17 high profile game. And again, like when we're generating these, le- these pieces of leverage, we don't have to like make a one and zero stance on that game. Like, oh no, that's not going to be like one of the optimal game environments. I'm just not going to attack it as heavily as the field is. Like, no, dude, like what if, what if like you build a, a Rams passing attack? So you got Stafford and then uh, Cooper Cup and, and Allen Robinson. You get like the top three guys in the passing attack, right? Mm-hmm. And you bring it back with like uh, Spiller instead of um, Eckler. Who's doing that? Who is leveraging that amount of variance that can happen between now and week 17? Yeah, no one, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, like, we, we can do these very simple things and like generate a massive amount of leverage because there are going to pe- have people who have a Rams passing attack stacked for week 17, right? Primarily, they're going to be either bringing it back with Austin Eckler or one of the Chargers pass catchers, the primary, you know, Keenan Allen or Mike Williams. Well, if you think about like, what if the Chargers are like, their defense is awesome and they're um, like crunching down on the run in week 17 and they jump out to an early two score lead. Okay. That's a viable outcome. Nobody's attacking an outcome like that, but with through the lens of a variant act like Austin Eckler getting injured. Yeah. So those are two very interesting, I guess, pieces that I've uncovered from like trying to attack week 17 in a smart way. Yeah. While you're while you're looking, like I've been talking, I've been like poking around at week 17 box scores from last year and like some interesting, you know, you see some interesting stuff coming out. Like week 17, I think the highest scoring game was actually Lions at Seahawks. Mm-hmm. Amon Ross St. Brown scored two touchdowns, including a rushing touchdown. You know, the the, pe- the pieces being drafted on the Lions in best ball last year were like who's the wide receiver? Tyrell Williams, I guess, was like the starting Yes. Yeah, Swift and Hawk and, and Williams. Yeah, yeah. And Hawkinson. I don't even know he played week 17. Um, Swift, you know, had six touches and did nothing. Um, you know, Rashad Penny rushed for 170 yards and two touchdowns uh, for mm-hmm. Seattle. And he was, I think he was drafted last year, but not, you know, he was like the, he was drafted the RB two. Um, you know, the Bucks had a good game against the Jets. It was Cyril Grayson who, you know, had a good game for the Bucks for the Bucks. And let's see the Titans, Donta Foreman rushed for 130 yards and a touchdown because Derrick Henry was hurt. You know, it's like, this is the point is we can't, we can't predict all these outcomes, right? The Patriots scored 50 points against the Jaguars. Ramondre Stevenson scored two touchdowns. Um, you know, we can't, we can't predict every outcome and we certainly can't predict with the accuracy that people, like people are drafting as if they feel they have a high degree of accuracy in their projections, in their assessments of how the season is going to play out. And we all know there's injury risk, right? Cool. But like, they're drafting with a with a belief of I know how this team is going to perform and behave for the whole year, right? Like Cincinnati yeah. was not expecting to be not expected to be this like pass happy super offense last year. Baltimore you know? Ravens, yeah, same thing. The Ravens passed like crazy last year to Mark Andrews went nuts um, for a lot of the year, and like people weren't expecting that, and they didn't build as if that was going to be the case, right? I mean, Mark Andrews was drafted, obviously, but like they weren't draft they weren't building around those team identities of what, who this team is, right? Like what this team is going to do, you know, the Bengals, I mean, they had some good players and they were drafted in best ball, but like they weren't, they weren't 
last year they were not being discussed as one of the primary game stacks you should target in best ball tournaments, right? Mm -hmm. Because that team evolved over time. Joe Burrow took a real step up. Jamar Chase was great. Their run game was horrible. Um, And they (laughs) they passed a ton, right? And like they got shootouts. Their defense was mediocre. And Jamar Chase just takes three yard screens, 80 yards to the house every week. Yeah, it was like <laughs> it was a nightmare of, D- of my, the DFS season when Odell Beckham was a rookie. I remember that. Like, I never played him, and he just kept like three yard screen to the house, like every freaking game. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, we, we don't know. We don't know nearly as much as we think we know. And, it, and when it comes to when it, the season's starting, we'll talk about this in DFS about how we know very little in week one. And that's become somewhat accepted in the DFS community now that week one, we know very little about these teams, their identities, how they're going to use their players, um, you know, who's going to get the touches, who's going to get the, the snaps. And, you know, we know very little we know, and we accept that about week one. So if we accept that we know very little about week one, why is it that people seem to think that we know a lot about week 17? Yeah, there's a, that's, that brings up another interesting point from a, a leverage point off of field tendencies. And that's just like, Stacking or correlating these less than, I guess, you know, glam matchups in week 17. You have like, you have Seattle playing New York Jets. No one's on that game, really. You have Jacksonville playing Houston. No one's really on that game. Yep. There's a little bit of, of Dallas and Tennessee love, but it's primarily around like CD Lamb and, you know, the primary pieces CD Lamb, Derrick Henry, um, Traylon Burks, my boy, or my boy, Blue. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, like no. What about like like last year? You just brought up the fact that Seattle and De- and Detroit was the the had to have it game in week seventeen. That that sounds a lot like you know one of these games like Jacksonville and Houston or Seattle and New York Jets. Yeah, I mean, like what if you know what if Zach Wilson takes a step forward in year two with a new you know coaching scheme? What if uh, what if you know the Jets and the Jaguars? Sorry, the Texans and the Jaguars are likely not good overall. But like, what if they? You know, what What if it's a bad defense game? Like, bad teams go have high-scoring games all the time, right? Like, they play ugly high-scoring games. And that's entirely possible. So, if you get... And if you're thinking about the, the combinatorial ownership, and you think, like, you know, 20% of the field is going to stack this game, and 15% is going to stack that game, and 2% are going to stack this game, is it really 10 times, you know, likelier that the, the highest stone game is the one that goes off and, and that you can pick the right pieces and that you can pick the right, you know, onesies, twosies to go around those pieces and that you can pick the right, you know, the right team to advance out of your field to begin with. Like your odds are not as high as you think they are, even if you get the week 17 game, right. You know? Yeah. So what other, what other, like, I guess, showdown methodologies um, are you looking to attack best ball with this year? So here's the thing that I think is tricky about best ball. One of the things I like best about showdown is there are a lot of them. You know, the, cha- the challenge with NFL, uh, NFL DFS is if you're playing main slates, there's not that, there aren't that many of them, right? Mm-hmm. It's a small sample size problem. Um, you don't know how good you are over the course of one year because your sample size is like 17 or now 18 main slates, right? Um, and so variants can easily uh, outweigh your ability as a player over a sample that small. And Showdown adds a lot more slates, and so there's a lot more opportunity for you know over a long over a long uh, series of time, your skill should you know play your skill should overcome variance. It's like poker, right? You play a whole lot of hands. If you're a good mm-hmm. player, your your skill should come through, and you should be a successful winning player over a long period of time. But you recognize that in a short period of time, you can get trounced by you know idiots going all in with two seven. Um, <clears throat> so showdown's interesting because you get a lot more of them. 
And so in any one showdown, and, and the right approach, right? The right approach to showdown, again, is showdown similar to best ball in a way that in the people are going to likely build a very similar way, right? Like the showdown people tend to flock to the favorites. You often see guy like, you know, the best, the quote unquote best player on the slate uh, in a showdown will often exceed 80, 90% ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the smart play, you know, if you're playing a lot of showdowns is you want to, you know, lean away from what the field is doing. Um, especially since there's so much overlap in a showdown. If you win, if you win by chasing what the field is doing, you're often going to win in a giant split and so mm-hmm. a very small prize pool. Um, whereas if you win in a you know off the cuff way, if you win in a way the field isn't chasing, then you're likely you're much much likelier to win a much larger prize pool uh, without splits or with smaller splits. Um, and so where this plays into best ball is that the right strategy in my mind for best ball is the same as showdown, right? Like in, it's, it's tournament style. You want to chase variants. You want to make variants your friend um, by, by avoiding what the field is doing. Um, but the problem with best ball is there's only one slate per year, right? Yeah. And so this plays into a really, like this is a really interesting psychological sort of experiment in my mind, because the way like for me as a player, the way that I got comfortable embracing so much variance in showdown is that I knew there was always another one tomorrow, you know, like it's, it's sort of like why I was always more comfortable playing a high variance style in NBA DFS or an MLB DFS than I originally was in NFL DFS. Cause there's always another slate tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads to, I think it's easier to adopt a risk heavy approach when you don't feel like all your eggs are on this, this basket of this one slate. Um, and so but the problem with best ball is they are right. There's only the one big slate the whole season. And so when your sample size is one, that tends to drive people towards a feeling of perceived safety. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to, they're, they're, they, they don't get another shot at it. Right. I mean, yes, you can do like this, the week two on drafts and all that, but they're so much smaller. Um, your chance yeah. of prize is only the whole season. And so that drives people to seek what they perceive as safety. But when everyone perceives the same thing as safety, it's not actually safe. Like as a really shitty example, imagine being in a really busy target and it catches fire and everyone flees to the same door because it's the one that looks the closest to where there's no fire. But if everyone in there goes to the one door, that's no longer the safe exit because there's a huge rampaging mob of people heading for it, right? Um, That's kind of how I see best ball in these big tournaments is that everyone's chasing the perceived safety because you don't get more shots at it. And in that, in chasing that perceived safety, they're actually embracing more risk than they realize because they're overlapping so much with other people who they just aren't seeing though. Because to your point, you only see your draft, right? Like you don't see, you can't, I can't go look at every draft and see, well, how many, how many total rosters do have Cooper cup paired with Keenan Allen paired with Justin Herbert, right? Like I can't go look that up anywhere. So yeah, people to chase safety and the art Here's where I'm going to give away the uh, the entire the entire bank account um, the entire bank account of my DFS uh, strategy <laughs> um, strategy mindset. All of DFS and all of best ball comes down like tournament play comes down to one simple concept, which is you know what the quote unquote best play is based on your projections of choice. It's whatever lineup projects to score the most points. But you also know that's probably a stupid lineup to play in a really big tournament, right? And do you use my DF, do you go back to DFS analogies? Um, and so the, the entire art of it is figuring out how much variance you're willing to embrace to get away from what everyone else is doing. 
So, I mean, like, and every once in a while on DFS and the Millie Maker, you see some random, totally uncorrelated lineup that leaves 3K on the table win, right? Yep. And that's the that's the complete shotgun approach. That's the that's the lottery approach. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm going to pick random players and call it a day. And you can win that way. You sure could, you can get super lucky and win that way. But it's probably not a sustainable strategy. Or you can play super super conservatively, and you'll probably cash a lot. Um, but you probably won't win. And so it's like finding the sweet spot for you as a player that fits your play style, your risk tolerance level. Like that's the key to winning. And figuring out like. You know, where do you fall in that spectrum between I want to play super safe and play like optimal lineups that are super well correlated and project super highly. I don't care about ownership versus I will throw darts at a dartboard and pick those players and don't care about correlation or anything else because um, it's all random anyway. Like where you fall in that spectrum is the most important thing to your long term success as a as a tournament player in DFS and in best ball. You know, you want to figure out how to be different, but how to be different without being stupid. That's yeah, the, and that's the whole shebang right there. And all the rest of the strategy conversation around DFS and best ball, it all comes back to that same thing at the end of the day. And when you we're talking about that magic word, that buzzword, that that high-low special, that that word variance, <laughs> we think about like how people are handling that. And you you nailed that the, the you nailed it on the head basically with people are trying to manage variance on individual rosters too much because we the feedback loop for best ball is so long. As in, we don't get to know right away how good we did or how bad we did or how much uh you know like how much variance was a factor because it's it's happening six months from now. Because of that, we're seeing a lot of rosters where they are sticking to the proven advancement rate formula of 25832682. Uh, and that's again roster construction we're talking about here, mm-hmm. and they're now throwing in that the 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 cheat code from last year, the perceived cheat code, we're say of week seventeen correlations. And it's like it's not that easy. This game is so variance driven and variance laden that I want to basically throw as much variance on individual rosters as I can and allow my portfolio across. Not just my 150 rosters in this contest, but the 600 rosters that I'm going to draft across all the big contests, right? So, like, if you, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) But if you, or, or what, however many your contests or rosters or whatever, however many you're putting into play, you have to think about that whole package as your entry, because that's what you're putting into play across the whole season. If you think about it that way, you're more willing and more capable to see past the uncomfortable act of being okay with variance on individual rosters. I've tried to highlight that this that this year with three running back builds, with four running back builds, with three quarterback and three tight end builds, like these builds that the field just isn't doing. And that's one of the tools and it's not the only tool that we have, but that's one of the tools that we have to in this contest of best ball is roster construction and playing with that, playing with non-standard correlations, playing with secondary correlations, playing with understacked game and correlations, you know, playing with these things, playing with uh, another, I guess, edge or leverage piece I brought up was stacking or ensuring that a tight end on a team is, is stacked with his quarterback. Because if, a tight end is going to be optimal in week 17. They are sure as shit going to have found the end zone and they possibly might have found the end zone twice. If that's the case, their quarterback is likely having a very nice game. 
So if you like think about these things, like what can I do to put myself in position to make the most money when I'm right and do it in a way that the field is not doing? Like all these little pieces are little just tools that we can use. And on individual drafts, you don't need to throw like caution to the wind and do everything that we're talking about and like say like, oh, I'm leveraged. The field isn't doing this. Well, that's probably too much variance packed into a single roster to be profitable over time. You need ones or twosies here and there to, to make your roster different. That's that's what you need. Because at the end of the day, we're fighting with on underdog 470 people in week 17. On DraftKings, it's 969. So we we still got to win a like medium size, we'll call it GPP, to take this thing down. Yeah, if you get one wa- one roster through ma- mathematically, you have a zero point two percent chance of winning. So yep, getting into week seventeen is not a, does not mean you win. And God, I remember last year, like there was so much like you know victory lapping on Twitter about like my advance rate was this, and it's like cool. If you're advanced, like there is such a thing, I believe, as too high of an advance rate. I agree. And I mean, like, and to be clear, any any roster has a non-zero chance of winning. And so it's possible someone could someone could have a 100 percent advance rate and they could they could win, right? But like, but if your advance rate is super high, what that probably means is you played it super safe. Um mm-hmm. and if you play it super safe, that it means you, your chances of it's like the old DFS thing of like it's like bragging about your cash rate in tournaments in DFS. And it's like I, you can have a thirty or forty percent cash rate in tournaments in DFS and still be losing money is the problem. And you know, I know people last year who had a really great advance rate out of their first groups in best ball, like thirty percent, and lost money because they advanced and then they didn't do anything. You know, they advanced, but they weren't ready for what comes next. They advanced and they were too similar to the field to differentiate. I one hundred percent agree, and I think uh, maybe a way to, I guess, relay or put this in a different way. And we have a lot of poker players in the crowd. So I'm going to use another poker analogy. I've tried not to use too many, but here we go. If you think about like the format of these best ball tournaments, it's akin to like a shootout tournament where you have to win your table to advance to the next table. You got to win that table, you advance and so on and so forth until the field is down to the final table playing to a winner. If you think about it in that way, having too high of an advance rate is akin to basically playing tight at every single table along the way and waiting for hands to come and hoping those hands hold. Even if you get pocket aces against, you know, pocket twos, you're still only winning that 80% of the time. So what does that mean? There's still 20% of the chance uh, or of the time that you are going to lose. If you are sitting around and not accepting a lot of variance, it is mathematically still possible for you to go all the way, make the final table and win. However, it is not the highest EV and most likely path to getting there. The most likely path to getting there in a shootout tournament is to be aggressive, accumulate chips, and then allow the variance of the coin flips, the 80-20% chance of holding. Then allow those because you've now built in additional slot. You're different, you have built in the slot, and you can now have a better shot realistically of making the final table and shipping that tournament. If you think about it, because the stages of these tournaments are very similar to that on underdog, we have to advance first from our draft, two people out of 12. Then we have to beat 10 people or I guess win a 10 person sit and go. Then we have to win a 16 person sit and go. And now we're finally at the final table, which is this GPP style, 470 person thing. Mm -hmm. So if you like, if you, are going to advance 
all those different rounds, you are going to have to not build a super team, but like accept additional variants that the field who you're going to be playing against in those rounds is not accepting. And now you have to be best leveraged in week 17 to win this 470 or 969 person GPP style format. Yeah. And the important thing there is to recognize that the for, the payout structure is really important, right? Like the payout structure is such that just like this isn't a final table where all the last 10 people are all going to make a lot of money, right? This is like, if you're in, if you're at the table of 470 in um, an underdog, the lowest, the least you can make is a thousand dollars. Now, if you only put one entry in for five or 25 bucks, that's pretty cool. But if you put 150 entries in, or if you put hundred entries in, you're 2,500 in, if you put 150 entries in, you're $3,700 in. So, you know, just getting, it's getting an entry to the final table doesn't, Guarantee, doesn't even come close to guaranteeing you profit. Mm-hmm. You have to be, if you're maxing it, you have to be like in the 100th, 100th to 200th place pays 3750. So that's your max entry buy-in. So you still have to be in the top half, but real money, like five figures, you have to be 50th place. You want to get to six figures, fifth place. So mm-hmm. you want like real, you know, like life change. Like I would, I would argue that for most people, six figures, hundred K would be pretty materially like, you know, not like, you know, buy a private yacht, but, you know, life-changing money, right? Like It's going to change, yeah. It's going to change some know, things. That's a new car, right? It's a down payment on the house. It's a lot of money. So you still got to be top five, which is, you know, 1% of that final table. And so I think that, like, you know, just getting to the final table does not even come close, you know, to, to getting you any sort of significant win. You've got to actually crush it, which is hard. Um and so, yeah, I mean, we keep, we keep coming back to the same thing, right? Embrace more variants, embrace more variants. Yeah. yeah. Smart food, but embrace more variants because most people aren't. Most people are scared of variants. Most people think variants is something to be managed. Um, and, you know, in, in a tournament and in a format that is, that might even be, and I will probably need 20 years of data before we can have any idea if this is true, but might even be higher variants than like than DFS. Um, it doesn't make sense to try and fight that tide, especially when everyone else is, you know, when 90% of the field is thinking about how to, how to minimize variance, you should be thinking about not how to maximize it necessarily, but how to utilize it smartly to work in your favor when your scenarios come to pass to position yourself. Right. You said something interesting earlier, which is, it's about, it's not about how, how often you win. Right? It's about what you win when you win, which I think Drew Dinkmeyer says all the time. He's a pretty smart dude, so I'm okay parroting him. Uh, yeah. But at the end of the day, right, there's 450,000 entries in the Best Ball Mania tournament, right? Like that's, I don't remember off the top of my head how many a Millie Maker has, but it's around that, right? $10 yeah. entry, you know, that's $4.5 million kind of collection. So yeah, yeah it's, it's like 420,000, I think, for the Millie you know, Maker. It's, and it changes week to week, right? But it's a few hundred K, mm-hmm. right? Like, you cannot enter this and just be like, I've got my, you know, chart of 80 of, of value and I'm going to try to draft a value and work in a couple stacks and haha, I'm so sharp, you know, like that's, if you're just doing it for kicks, I mean, sure, I guess, but like, if you're taking this seriously, which I assume if you're listening to a podcast about best ball, you're probably taking it kind of seriously. Um, you know, you need to think about how to maximize your odds of first and you don't do that in a 450,000 entry tournament, just as you wouldn't in DFS by just, playing super conservatively, right? Imagine the World Series of Poker is 450,000 people playing at tables. Would you play super tight there? Like, Yeah, and I, I, would want, I would say with 99% certainty 
that best ball is or does contain more variants than DFS. Just from understanding the NFL game and understanding everything that has to go right in order for you to win, like with 99% certainty, I would say best ball has more variants, intrinsic variants than DFS. Yeah. I think I would, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I don't, you know, I, yeah, I think that feels right to me because you're, you have all the same variants of DFS of like, you know, who catches the touchdown, all that stuff. Right. But you also have, you know, in DFS, you only have to worry about injury risk this slate, you know, like now mm-hmm. you predict like, is this guy who, you know, I'm drafting Christian McCaffrey first. Is he going to be healthy the whole season? I mean, like you need your core guys to be healthy and you have absolutely no control over that over the course of a full season. You just, you know, you, you roll, you, you rolls the dice, you take your chances. Plus the variance of opposing defenses, plus the variance of offensive lines over a full season, plus the variance of who you're paired up with in week 15, week 16. There's so much variance associated with best ball. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, so, you're right. yeah. imagine you draft, you know, a good running back and you think that like, this is a good play as long as he stays healthy and he does stay healthy, but four of his starting linemen get hurt over mm-hmm. the course of the season. You know, like you don't have to think about that in DFS really, right? The odds four of them hurt in one game is a pretty unlikely outcome. But mm-hmm. if it happens over the course of a season, then all of a sudden, and then that, that team shifts pass heavier in response to their offensive, offensive line injuries. You know, you know, crap, you got it. You got the process, right? But so, yeah, I would actually agree with that. Variance is massive. So, you know, in a high variance game, right? Like don't, and we're in a high variance game where everyone else or almost everyone else is attempting to minimize variance. Like that tells you what you should be doing to win over time is to, you know, is to try and embrace variance. But the problem is that sample size of one that it's, it's yeah. to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. People don't want to do that. Um, because like, it feels scary, right? Like you don't have another, you have to wait till the whole next, you have to wait a whole other year to get another crack at it. Like we will never know in our lifetime who is really good at best ball and who has gotten lucky. It's just, no, there's no. not enough, there's not enough slates to, <laughs> to have that hash out. And so that's what, I mean, that's why I like and why I've leaned into game theory and taking a, a marriage between statistics and theoretical concepts and execution should give us theoretically the best chance to be successful over time. But the, obviously the caveat of that is we don't have enough time to, to prove who is really good at this game and who is not. Yeah. Which to me, by the way, is super interesting. Like, I think that makes it a really compelling format to play Uh Um, because like the challenge with DFS, right, is the field has gotten much sharper over time. And and that, that, you know, I still think that there is an edge in DFS. I still think it's a beatable game. That's why I still continue to play it. Uh Um, But the field's gotten much smarter because there is like widespread availability of data. And, you know, you can give, you can give people all the good data in the world. They still have to make good decisions with it. And a lot of people aren't capable of doing that. Um, and so like, that's why, that's why there's still an edge in DFS, but if everyone interpreted the data in DFS correctly, the edge would go away. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in best ball, to your point, there's not going to be good data for decades. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you're the, you just, we won't have the sample size to make any informed decisions. And so we're, and so all these people, like the people who are all like trying to rely on like getting good information, like they're wandering around in the dark and there's some dude over in the corner with like a tiny flashlight being like build two, you know, two, five, eight, three. And they're like, okay, we'll go do that. Um, yeah. 
you know, the guy with the flashlight said so, and it's dark and I'm scared. I'm going to go to the flashlight. <laughs> like, you know, if you're the one, if you're willing to like, you know, close your eyes and, and let your other senses guide you to continue my analogy into weird places. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, you can find things that the other guys who are all chasing the flashlight won't find. Oh and man, that, dude. That, I, that makes it super interesting, right? Like, cause yeah. The, the, the field is not going to get better at best ball at the same rate that it got better at DFS because we won't have the same access to data. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to take a pause here and, and say I 100% missed the Zandemir analogies. <laughs> dude, I was a philosophy major in college. I, I, I majored analogies. It's so good, dude. God, I can't wait for Saturdays this season. That's right. It's coming back, baby. Saturday podcast with Zandemir. Let's go. Um, all right, man, that was heavy, heavy, deep into the weeds of, of some theory. There's one last thing that I think is going to clean us up here for this episode. And that is this idea of risk profiles. Talk to me a little bit about what that invokes, what feelings that evokes in you. What are you thinking about when we're talking about risk profiles? So it's funny when I actually mentioned that to you, what I had actually, what I was really thinking about was, um, the concept was the idea of only one shot at it and how, oh, okay. how people perceive risk. <laughs> so, but I think though, then you said something to me in a message that made me think deep, deeper. So what you were talking about was about player risk profiles, mm-hmm. which I actually think is a really interesting subject. Um, and I'm writing a piece. I wrote a piece last year on projection fragility and I'm updating it this year. And so it's hard to express this without visuals, but like, yeah, if you imagine imagine a graph with a normal distribution, and if you don't know what a normal distribution is, just Google it. It's that standard sort of like hill-looking curve that starts low on both ends and is kind of a hump in the middle. The bell right? curve. Normal distribution where most of the outcomes are in the middle. Mm-hmm. What's the middle of it? Now imagine something called a barbell distribution where most of the outcomes are on the... It looks like a barbell that you lift right at the gym. Most of the most of the weight of the outcomes are on the extremes, and the center is lower of a gra- on a on a, on a chart. Mm-hmm. So those two distributions can have the exact same median value, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the, the median value being the middle value. And so projections and best ball ADP, best ball rankings, those are all running off of projections, essentially, right? Projections are all median outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's important to know when you're thinking about building rosters, whether it's DFS or best ball, that it's important to understand that one median projection is not the same as another. And a really simple example here, right, is that like volume driven positions like quarterback and running back, uh, their scoring tends to be more clustered. If you if you were to graph running back and uh, and, and quarterback scoring across the entire NFL, um, you would for a, for a season you would see that the distribution of scores is t- is in a tighter range than if you were to graph wide receiver and tight end scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, those are on a wider range of outcomes. Um, and so, what you want to think about when you build rosters and when you're trying to build rosters in a way that embraces variance is you want to think about how fragile a given player's projection is. And so a projection or a you know ranking or in best ball uh, can be fragile for a variety of reasons, right? It can be fragile because of uncertain playing time. Um, it can be fragile because of just volatility in the nature of the player's game. So like a deep threat wide receiver is much more volatile than a possession slot receiver, 
right? Think like a, you know, a Cole Beasley type or a Rondale Moore type last year, at least, um, versus, you know, a Mike Williams or a, uh, you know, Robbie Anderson, right? Much more volatile receivers. And in basketball, because we care about spike weeks, we want volatility, right? Generally speaking, um, as a general where you want volatility, but you want to have floor on your roster too. So like, you know, the, the slot guys have, have a role. But you want like, but really, what you're looking for in best ball is is spike tweaks. <clears throat> you hope the spike tweaks align in a way that you know gives you good scores throughout the course of the season. Um, and so, you know, Robbie, like Robbie Anderson, and you know, Rondeau Moore might have the same projection. They might score the same number of points over the course of the whole season, but their distribution of those points is likely to be uh, wildly different, right? And and they're just proxies. Those guys are just proxies for my slot receiver and my my deep threat receiver, right? Um, mm-hmm. Are important, but the the deep threat wide receiver is likely to have lower lows. You know, he's likely to have zeros some weeks um, and higher highs. And another really good way to think about this and how you use it in drafting, like everyone knows what deep threat receiver is and that they have volatile profiles. Um, but playing time and usage um, has you know has a has, has a lot of fragility to it uh, due to injury um, or due to just uncertain roles, and especially if you're drafting like before you know, you're drafting now or you're drafting a couple months ago, you're having to make a lot of assumptions about who's going to be playing, right? Like if you're drafting before the NFL draft, you're like, well, who gets drafted where um, on what team? And if you're drafting, you know, now you're like, well, you know, does your boy Travion Burks, is he a starting wide receiver the whole season, right? Does he start week one and play 70% plus of the snaps or do they work him in gradually, right? Like, I don't know, but if they start him very gradually and, and and he doesn't start off well, he, you know, maybe they, maybe they take it easy on him his first rookie season. I don't know. Um, That's, that's, that's a possible that's in the range of outcomes for him. Right. And so in that case, his ADP is way too high, right? He's probably worthless. Um, But if he starts, if he starts week one and is playing 70% plus of the snaps every single week from week one onwards as the, you know, as the Titans wide receiver one Burks is the guy in the Titans, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Phew. <laughs> That's where I look like an idiot. Um, That's all right. But if he plays, you know, 70% plus the snaps from week one on as the wide receiver one, then his ADP is way too low. Right. And, and you're getting a bargain if you invest in him. So you want to think about how you incorporate those elements of fragility onto your onto rosters and like Burks is a guy he's gonna get he's gonna get drafted every draft right but you want to think about for each given roster not just like what you think about Burks as a whole for each given roster you want to think about how fragility plays into this roster and does it need more fragility or less fragility so like if you have a roster that starts out with a very conservative initial few picks then you might want to try and embrace fragility, some fragility by grabbing guys like Burks and other guys like him that increase the fragility of your roster. Because it's also important to talk about the definition, right? Like things, things like variance and fragility, what they actually mean, like the, the mathematical definition of those terms is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And we kind of think of it as bad, right? Fragility sounds like fragile, which sounds like weak, and we think that's bad. You know, variance sounds like volatility, those sound like bad things. All they mean is 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 being more volatile more different right but it could be different in a favorable way it's not always un- people think about it as being different in an unfavorable way like who wants to own a volatile stock right well if it's going up you want to own a volatile stock over a non-volatile stock if the market's going up right because that means the stock the volatile stocks are going to move more similar to this right 
you want to think about how you incorporate fragility onto each roster based on where the roster already is and what you're trying to do with it. And, you know, I think about this in DFS and I think about this, you know, in DFS, I want to have a good amount of fragility on each roster. I don't want to have a crazy roster that's all fragile plays, um, unless I'm entering a giant tournament, perhaps. But I also don't want to have, you know, a super conservative roster because that's like, doesn't likely have the upside to win a tournament. So just like DFS and best of all, you want to think about your roster as having the right amount of, of volatility, the right amount of fragility to, you know, to give you enough upside and while being, you know, while trying to be different in the field, you know, you don't want to be, you want to have, you want to find the right mix. And I don't, there's a mathematical way to express that right mix for best ball. I don't think there ever will be mm-hmm. again, for like a hundred years because we're just not going to have data. But I think that that's what we try to, that's, that's the philosophical goal, right? Is trying to think about fragility, think about volatility in a way that's productive and useful, that it's a tool we can use as opposed to thinking about it as, uh, something to be scared of or to avoid because it's bad. You just perfectly explained why I maxed the underdog BBM prior to training camps opening. Yeah, and I and the, I would bet, I would venture a bet. I'm gonna, I want to I want to make this bet before you say it if I if I may. Yeah. I would venture a bet that you intentionally took on a lot more risk, specifically with player roles on those rosters before training camp, because you're trying, you're trying to catch, you know, what people don't know yet. And then, and then they'll figure out later. I went into this best ball draft season, planning on 50 drafts prior to preseason camp, 50 drafts between drafts between the opening of preseason camp and the start of preseason. And then 50 drafts after uh, preseason started before the regular season started a perfectly distributed, um, sample across all the three that I've identified draft windows, right? Because those are different layers of getting more information into teams. When I started drafting, I realized that the field was not embracing this invariant, this level of variance in the early draft window. And I decided very early through probably 20 or 30 drafts that I was like, okay, it's time to max because I'm embracing the shit out of this variance in this early draft window. And the field is not. That's why I'm going to read off some exposures to you. And you'll probably, a lot of people probably laugh at this, but that is the why behind how I came about maxing before camp and the player exposures that I have. My Chicago Bears exposure, Cole Komet, 40%, Justin Fields, 36%, and Darnell Mooney, 26%. Why? Justin Fields, like really good, kind of like the the last third of the season, in fantasy terms at least. Dude, he is, to me, he is the widest range of outcomes, pure quarterback, uh, or I guess widest range of outcomes quarterback in the league this year. He is somebody that everyone's down on because he was showed no pocket presence and um, didn't translate that pocket awareness into rushing ability that we know he has. Well, like that's something that can be improved upon. So he has this, not to mention everything that's changed up and down the organization of the bears. They have, they got a new um, GM prior to the season. They hired 12 new coaches, including a, an entirely new, they stood up an analytics department uh, with uh, Kreethi Charkandrashan. And it's like, they have all this stuff, moving pieces that is new in Chicago. Uh, But nobody, you know, the first bear off the board is Darnell Mooney, who is going uh, end of the fifth round, pretty much at, from the beginning of draft season up until now. And then it was like a massive break until Justin Fields and Cole Komet in like rounds starting like 
they started in like rounds 12 and 13. Now they're up to like 10 and 11. But like that, that's such a wide range of outcomes. Other players like that, Traylon Burks, I have 32% because one, everybody thinks that um, Tennessee is just going to be able to run the ball and pound the rock through Derrick Henry. Well, we have a lot going with that. I've explained it before. Too long didn't read version is they have a harder strength of schedule this year. They had the easiest last year. They were able to be in the game environments that they wanted last year. They were able to pound the rock with whatever running back they had in the backfield. I don't think that's going to be the case. I have, um, I have a lot of Tannehill. Uh, Tannehill So even if he, even like, even if that's the case, right. AJ Brown put up a lot of good games in a run first offense. Yeah, and Traylon Burks is like when he was on that team, right? Like it's like saying the yeah. Redford's offense can't support a good one good pass catcher. Traylon Burks is very, very similar in an athletic profile to AJ Brown, which is like to me, they drafted the direct AJ Brown backup or uh 2.0 basically. So that was my uh reasoning on Burks. I have 28% Chase Edmonds, who was all in mm. the what 11th round. I have 22% Rashad Penny all in the 10th, 11th round. Um, these players that have this like massively wide range of outcomes, Jalen Tolbert in Dallas, 23% of him, because like he could start the season as a starting wide receiver with the injuries to Michael Gallup. You know, they brought in Washington, but what is he like he, this? All I want is like talent and opportunity and let variants take over the rest. Uh, so, and, and the point is that you're not, you're not predicting and saying, I am confident that this Dallas guy is, I don't even know who that guy's name is, that he <laughs> is going to be, you know, starting wide receiver and that, you know, you're not trying to predict that you're trying to position yourself so that this is a, this is a possible outcome. And that if this outcome comes to pass, you want to be positioned so that you maximize your benefit from it while the field is not able to realize much benefit from it. Yeah. I'm going to give a shout out here because this highlights one of, um, one of the players that I'm some would say overexposed to, and that's 18th round D Ernest Johnson. Why oh, the hell, why the hell do I have 28% of 18th round D Ernest Johnson? Well, one he, and this is data from, uh, Sam Hoppin. If you're not following him, smashes. Yeah. So this is data from Sam Hoppin. Uh, if I, I don't even know what he's affiliated with, but he's a smart dude. Uh, and he did a study on, um, basically a mathematical model in expected, um, rushing yards over, or basically rushing yards over expectation per carry mm-hmm. in 2021. And his data spat out, uh, DeErnest Johnson was the fifth highest player in rushing yards over expectation. He was the third highest running back in 2021 because Josh Allen and Debo Samuel made that list. It was, <laughs> it was Rashad Penny first, yep. Nick Chubb second, and Dearness Johnson third. Okay, so two of the top three are Cleveland Browns. What else is going on in the Browns organization? They have Kareem Hunt, who's uh, on a fairly high-paying running back contract, and it expires at the end of this season. They have Dearness Johnson, who they brought back on a one-year kind of prove-it deal type thing. Uh, they also have, obviously, uh, Nick Chubb. Yep. Nick Chubb isn't going anywhere, but they also have this dude named Deshaun Watson, who has all kinds of off-field stuff going, all kinds of uncertainty going on around him. What happens if Watson gets even half a year suspension and the Browns are not in a, I guess, 
a win-loss record column that they were looking to be at. Are they going to hold on to both Dernis Johnson and Kareem Hunt? I don't know. It's To me, it's highly po- probable that one of them, if Deshaun Watson does get suspended this year, it's highly probable that one of them gets moved to unload their contract and get something in return for them, as opposed to seeing them walk in free agency and get paid by somebody else. Or it gets hurt, right? I mean, like, here's the thing about, like, Dernis Johnson has had three games last year in which he saw more than 10 running back opportunities. In those three games, he had 24, 27, and 26 running back opportunities. He had 168, uh, 157, and 133 yards from scrimmage. He Mm -hmm. scored two touchdowns. He caught 11, sorry, uh, he caught nine, 10 passes. So, like, if you know what you what you want when you're drafting those like backup running back options, you know who could become relevant. Like people are drafting Alexander Madison. He's 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 going in every draft, right? Like because people say, oh, if Dalvin Cook gets hurt, Madison's going to be a badass. Like cool, he probably he would be if Dalvin Cook gets hurt, right? But what if Nick Chubb gets hurt? Yeah, and, or and or Kareem Hunt, or you know, one gets moved and one gets hurt, or whatever. Like, what if Kareem Hunt gets moved and then Nick Chubb gets hurt? Yeah, <laughs> there's a path to Ernest Johnson getting get having meaningful games. We saw it last year; like it happened. This isn't hypothetical. You know, this isn't purely theoretical. Like it happened last year. He had three meaningful games and he put up awesome scores in all three of them. You get three spike weeks from your like 18th round pick in best ball. Like that's a win. And yet, no one's drafting him, right? So, like, yeah. I love that pick. Because he's proved, like he's a guy. He's he's shown he can do it. We're not just talking about purely theoretical upside. Um, there's a clear path to it. But if you're going to be drafting these backup running backs who need, who really need an injury in front of them to be valuable, like don't draft the one that's that's a hundred percent owned, right? Like Alexander Madison is a hundred percent owned, and so like if if Dalvin Cook gets hurt, every like in every single group of twelve. There's some there's a roster that benefits from it, from Dalvin Cook getting hurt because everyone's rostering Madison, right? Draft the guy, draft the ones who aren't being drafted, where like because you want to be the only one who benefits in those like those kind of long shot situations. Yeah, the only reason, honestly, the only reason I don't have more Darnus Johnson because this was a stance I took very early in my draft process. The only reason I don't have more is because. Guys like Isaiah McKenzie and Devin Duvernay were also not being drafted in these early drafts in the early draft window. You know, now Isaiah McKenzie like has gotten all this press in the first day of camp. He's going to be drafted in every draft from now on. But I have all my shares are 18th round. I have 27% of McKenzie. I have 36% Devin Duvernay. Why? He's an athletic freak and all he needs is opportunity. I wanted to, and Marquise Brown left. Guess what? You know, (laughs) yeah. Like I wanted to be overweight that and see if like, oh, maybe the Baltimore Ravens don't want him returning kickoffs and punt returns anymore. That's a good sign that they expect him to be more involved in the offense. So I wanted to leverage the uncertainty with those situations before we got, you know, more information on them. Yeah. What's super interesting to me is. I feel like I saw some analysis around best ball advance rates based on time of draft. Um, mm-hmm. And what it showed was that uh, drafting early, drafting late was actually an advantage, right? So the theory goes, I would think that drafting early is an advantage if you get it right, because you can, you know, you can get the players whose ADPs are going to rise significantly as their roles come into clarity. Um and you you accept some injury risk and such in camp because that like you drafted Cam Akers like last year. Oops, right? Um, but 
the data said from last year that that it was better to draft it late. Cool. I don't think that that's actually because of anything inherent to drafting early versus drafting late. I think what that data says, it's ta- it's the insightful piece, the insightful takeaway from that data is about player psychology, not about is it better to draft early or draft late. What it tells me is it reinforces my belief that people are shying away from variants. They're playing for perceived safety and playing for perceived safety doesn't works even worse if you're drafting early. Mm-hmm. Is there's more there's you know the earlier you draft the more variance there is and so if you want more variance draft early right like i and why why is why did that study find that drafting late was optimal in my mind it's exactly as you said because adp is most solid or i guess most certain it has allowed the most time to stable out it is most accurate right before the last draft prior to the season kicking off. So if that's the case, everybody from Joe Schmo to, you know, Hollywood hero is playing with a more certain set of data. Obviously that is going to lead to higher scoring teams on average, but we're not looking for higher scoring teams on average. We're looking for, the top 0.001% of teams. We're looking for the extreme outliers. So if that's the case, that is what went into me drafting all of my underdog teams early. I have no response beyond that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't, fortunately, like it's, you know, hindsight, but it's perfect, right? But like, I didn't get into uh, thinking about best ball for the season until too late. I missed that window, unfortunately. And as mm-hmm. we're thinking about best ball more and more, it seems very clear to me that what's optimal in the long run is drafting early because you can, there's so much more variance in, and if you can get it to fall your way and you won't on every roster and that's, you know, you, but you don't need to advance every roster. You need one to win. Right. Like, and which is why you don't have a hundred percent Devin Duvernay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, you're not trying to bet that he is going to smash. You're, you're trying to position yourself so that if he smashes, if the Ravens utilize him differently this year, that you are well positioned to capitalize on that because by the time the field knows that, you know, then his ADP moves way up. And so mm-hmm. they're getting this guy in, you know, the 10th round or the 11th round and you got him in the 18th. And if you're willing to embrace that variance, that's what helps. Like you can build theoretically, you can build much stronger rosters early. If, if the thing, if the chips fall your way, right? Like mm-hmm. if, you know, Dearness John, if, if Kareem Hunt gets traded, uh, you know, fairly early in the season and then Nick Chubb gets hurt, if, you know, Isaiah McKenzie moves into, you know, full-time uh, receiver role, you know, like if those things fall your way, you have much stronger rosters in your stable of rosters than it's possible for people to have built just before you know, the, uh, this before the season kicks off when all that information is known and ADPs are most efficient. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you have more variance, but you have more upside. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I have, I'm not going to know from the results of this year, if what I did was optimal, but knowing what my strengths are, and that's basically utilizing game theory to embrace more variance. It made sense for me to draft mm-hmm. all of my teams early. All right, man. That was 
an action-packed hour and I guess an hour and a hour and 15 minutes now of theoretical concepts, knowledge. Dude, I missed chatting with you. I cannot wait until regular season starts. We get this every Saturday, but I really appreciate you coming on and giving us your uh, very, I guess, we'll just call it a, a different perspective from your obviously heavy theoretical and showdown background. Yeah, uh, I was so going to say, um, yeah, it's like, I miss this, you know, it's funny. I don't think I've, I don't think I've talked about football for this long, uh, since our last podcast. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been almost, it's been a long time, many months. So I'm super excited, uh, to get this, to get back into this. If you were listening f- uh, to this and you do not know who Zandamir is, Zandamir is the primary showdown contributor and now head of the wagering department at one week season. You can find him uh, on Twitter at what is your tag? Is it just at Zandamir? That's Zandamir. And that is X A N X A N D A M E R E, correct? That's correct. Oh, I could spell good. I do English good. <laughs> uh, and if you know him, then you know what to expect. We will be back, Sandemir and I, for the Saturday Inner Circle podcast. If you are not an Inner Circle member, highly, highly recommend you checking it out. There is just stuff that goes on in, on Discord and on Saturday evenings that is just not available anywhere else in the industry. And we really pride ourselves on that. Check him out on Twitter. Check out the new betting product uh, on OWS and more to come. So look for that here shortly. I'm Hilo. You'll catch me every Friday uh, for this Best Ball podcast. We are out.